Wednesday, May 1st, 2013, episode number 48 of the Football Nation Today podcast with Alex Reamer on footballnation.com. Football Nation Today podcast, hosted by yours truly, Alex Reamer, published on Wednesdays right here on footballnation.com. And for your downloading convenience in the iTunes Store, please subscribe to the Football Nation Today podcast in the iTunes Store if you have yet to do so. We have a big show coming up for you today, momentarily in the first down segment. We'll take a look back at some of the highlights and lowlights from this past weekend's NFL draft. The New York Jets, much talked about over the past couple of days. Went defense in the first round, then drafted quarterback Geno Smith early on in the second round. Is that exactly the best atmosphere with the Jets for a rookie quarterback to succeed? I don't know. Seems like a recipe for failure to me. Talk about that and how Geno Smith fits in with the Jets. Another team the AFC East, the Bills, took EJ Manuel, quarterback, midway through the first round. Was that a reach on Buffalo's part, or do they really believe that Manuel uh, is the guy? at quarterback for them for the next decade. Uh, the Patriots traded down from 29 to 52. Uh, what are some of the pros and cons from trading down and trading down that that much in the NFL draft? Uh, Manti Teo and Tyron Matthew were drafted by the Chargers and Cardinals, respectively. Uh, what kind of impacts will those high-profile rookies have on the field this season? And who had the best draft overall? Was it the Steelers and Packers who addressed a lot of needs and a lot of the uh, pundits loved what they did over the weekend. Or was it the Vikings who certainly were very aggressive? We'll talk about all that and more with Eric Bending, one of our resident draft gurus right here on footballnation.com. So Eric Bending joins the show momentarily to help us break some of that down. Uh, then coming up in the second down segment, we typically take a look at the biggest off-field NFL story of the past week. But this week, I think it's appropriate we take a look at a story that um, applies to all of the four major professional sports here in America. Uh, that, of course, is the story of NBA center Jason Collins, the first openly gay active professional athlete. I have a brief commentary to deliver on that, talking about some of the ramifications of Collins coming out uh, for all the four major sports in the NFL as well. Of course, this is a story we've talked about at length throughout this offseason, so we have some thoughts on that in the second down segment. In the third down segment, we go back to football in the Big Up Slowdown uh, segment, debating topics such as Tim Tebow and his NFL future. The only thing that could upstage Laker Elimination Day on ESPN uh, was, well, Tebow Elimination Day. So, Tim Tebow, what is his future in the league after the Jets released him? And Aaron Rodgers re-signed with the Packers, a five-year deal north of $100 million, $62.5 million guaranteed. Is that a good deal? Is that a bargain for the Packers? Yes, a bargain. We'll talk about that. Then the fourth down segment, it's the Reamer rant. Tyron Matthew, now an Arizona Cardinal. The Cardinals will reportedly drug test Matthew throughout the season. But what happens if Matthew, I don't know, does something a little worse, like smoke a little weed, like smoke a little weed, like, I don't know, get a DUI. What are the ramifications there? Mm, I don't know. Talk about some of the hypocrisies with discipline in the NFL. It's Football Nation today, episode number 48. My name is Alex Reamer. We'll be right back. 
Welcome back, Football Nation. Today, it's our first down segment to help us recap some of the uh, high points and low points from this past weekend's NFL draft. We welcome in Eric Bendig, who has done a great job covering the draft and some of its fallout right here on footballnation.com. Also, also read him on his website, scoutingblitz.com. Eric, how are you? I'm good, Alex. How are you doing? Good to talk to you, sir. Again, we're talking with Eric Bendig here on Football Nation today. Now, Eric, I was reading some of your draft recap on Football Nation uh, a couple of days ago, and you said that cornerback D. Melner, who the Jets selected with the ninth pick in the first round, was one of your top five picks of the first round. We're going to start with the Jets. They've been a big topic. So let me first ask you, what were your thoughts on their draft, even with all their needs on the offensive side of the ball, going with defense in the first round with Milner and then the defensive lineman, Sheldon Richardson? Yeah, in regards to uh, Milner, I, you know, I really thought, he took the biggest hit with the shoulder injury, with uh, with, with his shoulder injury, with his torn labrum. Uh, you know, I thought he was slow to come back from that. A lot of people dinged him down the board for that. Uh, I like the pick because you know you lose the top quarterback in the in the league, and, and you have to find a replacement, and they draft him. So I like the pick there with what they did at number nine. Um, Sheldon Richardson to me at number thirteen right. um, didn't seem. I heard something after the draft about Rex Ryan maybe moving more to the 4-3. He lost a few of his outside linebackers, his pass rushing guys, you know, the Calvin Pace. Um, and a couple of those guys that he's lost that have been with him throughout his career. And he was trying to move to more of the 4-3, which that would make sense with Sheldon Richardson because I don't see him as a five technique and I definitely don't see him as a nose. So you got to wonder what they're doing there. And obviously uh, they're not going to tip their hand too early to us. Um, so I liked what they did with Sheldon Richardson. That's the, uh, that's the idea that they're going to they're gonna move more to the 4-3 uh, because he is one of the best uh, penetrating three techniques in this, in this draft. Yeah, I mean, I understand the Jets have a lot of needs offensively, but with Rex Ryan still the head coach and still clearly calling some of the shots, um, I don't mind them going defense in the first round because I look at Geno Smith drafted in the second round for the Jets, and I say, Eric, I mean, is it possible for Smith to develop and thrive with the Jets, what, uh, given what they are now? I mean, I feel like that situation uh, is a black hole for a rookie quarterback like himself. Yeah, you know, San Antonio Holmes is the only the only playmaker that I see. I mean, they have some very unproven guys. Joe McKnight at running back was a, is apparently the, you know, heir apparent, I would say. I mean, they didn't draft a running back. Um Sean Green got let go in free agency. Um, I know they have brought in some guys, but Santonio Holmes is their only weapon. And I would have thought, like probably everybody else that analyzes uh, and watches, that they would have gone wide receiver or offense with one of those picks. Um, I think a lot of Tyler Eifert conversation came into the, uh, came into the equation late. Because they um, lost Keller you know, too, right? Yeah, and then uh, Cordero uh, Patterson, uh, from Tennessee, I know he was intriguing. Um, I think a lot of a lot of red flags came up about his uh, mental capacity. But yeah, I mean, I you know, I, I actually <laughs> funny. I actually coached against uh, Patterson in high school, and I mean, you know, from high school, I oh, really? think he okay. was fine. But um, but he was uh, you know to prep school to to JUCO to having been on the Tennessee campus for you know less than four months, probably. Um, I think he had some some major issues. But digress. He I thought was in play for him because he's such a he's got that flash, that flamboyant attitude that kind of fits with what the Jets do. I think if any fan of the NFL can figure it out. Um but yeah, Geno Smith is going into a situation uh that 
they're thriving to find a quarterback, but you've got to help them. And I don't think they did too much to help them yeah. uh, in, in this draft. I mean, it's, it's not just the players, though, Eric, which is certainly a large part of it, but to me, it's also the coaching staff. I mean, Rex Ryan is completely inept when it comes to the offensive side of the football. I'm not sure Marty Morningway at this stage is a guy who can take a quarterback to any sort of level. I mean, Mark Sanchez, let's not forget, Eric, um, his first two years in the league won four road playoff games. It seemed to me with some coaching, I mean, obviously, you got to put a lot of the responsibility on the player, but I think the coaching has failed there as well, so it's not just the players. To me, it's the entire coaching staff with Rex Ryan still running it. I just don't think Think that's an environment where a quarterback can grow and thrive. No, um, you know, Geno Smith is, is probably unbelievably happy, you know, from the outside looking in because he's coming into a situation where he more than likely is going to be called upon early. Um, but like you said, Rex Ryan, I like his style. He, he obviously cut his teeth as a defensive guy, obviously with his father and his brother and the lineage they have there, but he, he is totally. He's a guy that's going to hire a coordinator and not probably step foot in an offensive meeting for the rest of the year. Mm. Um, and they don't have – I don't – you know, they got rid of Tannenbaum. All I saw with him was on, you know, what I've seen on television, but he, he really did do a good job of helping that team kind of into the ground the last couple of years. <laughs> um, and they they bring in a guy that uh, – in, in uh, Idzik that comes in and, he, you know, he's – he gives you the kind of the, the GM speak, the best available, and, and you know we're going to do what's best for the team. And you know right now, it just doesn't seem like they have the offensive weapons to even, and, and the offensive wherewithal right. to right. to lead this out of the the doldrums, if you will, I mean, right. and the laughing stock in the league on paper. Right. I mean, I mean, that's it to me, Eric, the offensive wherewithal. That's the term I'm looking for because it's not just the players. It's the overall system there. I mean, the overall philosophy yeah. to me is so behind the times. And, uh, you know, I mean, we'll see. I mean, I was a proponent at the time of Rex Ryan maybe staying on for another year. But the more I think about it, knowing where the league is heading, I, I, I really question that decision to keep Rex Ryan on as coach. Going to talk with Eric Bending here, footballnation.com. Also read him, scoutingblitz.com. Let's go to another team, the AFC East, Eric, that made wavelengths in the draft, the Bills. Did they take EJ Manuel because they think he's their next franchise quarterback, or did they take him because there was nobody else there and they didn't want to go into a season with nobody behind Kevin Cobb? Well, to answer that last part of the question, you know, I think is any a guy like yourself, a guy like me, a guy that has a little bit, you know, that studies the game a little bit more than maybe just the average fan. Don't knows give me too that, much credit, that Kevin, <laughs> <laughs> that Kevin Cobb is not it was not the answer. Yeah, I, can, um, I can see that. Yes. Yeah. I mean, you know, and people, you got the, Hey, maybe, maybe that's who they think, you know, maybe they're going to try to resurrect his career. But I knew that that was uh you know, that was a, a Matt Flynn type of movie, even though I think Matt Flynn might have a little bit, you know, of a chance given the right situation. Russell Wilson obviously came in and just blew it out of the water, but there's just kind of a, we need a, we need a solid number two and a guy that if he plays well, Hey, you know, great. But I think going into it, you know, I didn't buy into the Ryan Nassib, situation and um because of bill marone or doug marone excuse me and let me tell you why in, in college you know they go out and recruit players i guarantee you that doug marone you know when he was out on the recruiting trail he probably wanted matt barkley first he probably wanted a an ej manual before he got ryan that's mm. i mean that's just the way it is you know it was a nice four years he beat geno smith but well, come on i mean you know he got a chance <laughs> to go out and pick his first player he's not gonna just just because he coached him in college i mean look at you know look at uh Brian, you know, Chip Kelly in Philadelphia, he didn't pick all Oregon players. You know, I mean, you know, so um, 
I think, honest to God, EJ Manuel was the number one player at the position on their board, and they felt that, that picking at uh, 16, when you know coming back in and trading back into 16, um, that they, you know, they were jumping some teams that were honestly going to get to go out and pick him. I mean, he got a lot of buzz late in the process. Uh, that he was leapfrogging a lot of guys. I mean, you know, I don't, I don't think it started with, you know, the Mayots and the Kuipers putting them on their big board. I mean, I think he just started to blow it out of the water. And, you know, we know Florida State kind of underperforms lately. I mean, Jimbo Fisher's kind of righted the ship, but I think he really just started to gain some tremendous buzz late in the process. And now he's their guy. I really think that Buffalo has that sense of mentality, that he is the, he was the number one quarterback and we're going to jump up and get him. Is that a mistake? Do you like EJ Manuel? Because McShay and Kuyper both criticized the pick to no end. What's that? Do you like EJ Manuel? Because McShay and Kuyper both were shocked he was picked that early. Yeah. So well, do you like him? I like his, uh, you know, I like him kind of like I like Geno Smith. You know, EJ Manuel and Geno Smith are extremely athletic. And I don't fall into the trap of this read option, uh, which is great stuff. I mean, don't get me wrong. As a coach and as a, as a, as a person that analyzes it, I love innovations and things like that, even though the zone's been around. The read option's been around for a while. E.J. Manuel is athletic, but he has a rifle for an arm. Um, and here's what you got to think. I mean, they drafted him trusting their quarterback coach and their offensive coordinator that we're going to take the best talent. You know, the best talent who has a good mindset, and we're going to turn him into a franchise quarterback. We, we, we pay our coordinator a million dollars. We pay our quarterback's coach $200,000. Go out and do your job. Take the best player on our board and turn him into the guy that's going to lead this franchise. And I think they've picked him over Geno Smith, who has some accuracy issues, and I think he, he's, got, he's got leadership qualities, but I don't think he's as much of a leader as E.J. Manuel can be. And he's got, you know, and E.J. Manuel has a much better feel for throwing the football, even though Geno's got a great, he's got a great arm. Um, again, we're talking with Eric Bending, footballnation.com here on Football Nation today. Uh, Eric, the Patriots, to talk about another team in the AFCs, but AFC seemed to make a lot of headlines this weekend, then we'll get some other stories. Uh, they traded down from 29 to 52, accumulating three additional draft picks in the process. Now, I'm, you might be aware of these studies. Uh, studies have come out that say a player in the second round can give you 70% of the production of a first-round player for 30% of the cost. Those numbers would seem to validate the Patriots' approach and other approaches to trading down when you're not enamored with a player. Overall, Eric, what are your thoughts on the philosophy of trading down out of the first round into the second round? You know, this year, I, I love it, to be honest. Um, you know, if, if you follow any of those guys and you follow anything I've ever written or anything a lot of guys have written, Players that were on people's big boards, quote unquote, um, 20 to 20 to 50, 20 to 60, were almost the same, you know, identical grades. I mean, you're, you know, you got past the elite guys, and and, and there was some real solid players uh, in that same range. And I think, and, and God bless the Patriots, man. I'll tell you what, as I, as I keep in touch with the rumor mills and you know, and look online, just keep in touch with uh, anything possible out there about draft buzz, uh, you know. Bill Belichick must have those guys like leverage their houses against against stuff coming out because yep, there's does. nothing that ever comes out of there. Yep, he does. <laughs> um, there's no rumors that ever come out of there. So I had no idea what they were going to do. You knew they needed a wide receiver, and you knew they needed a uh, you know they always they're always DB they're always, always. DB friendly there. Always. Um, but uh, I like the philosophy that the Patriots use for what they needed. Now you know 
guys like, uh, you know, Baltimore didn't need to. You know, were they in a place to and acquire picks to try to, you know, try to help out? No. They needed to take the best available player to, you know, to make up for the loss of Ray Lewis and, uh, you know, uh, Ed Reed. And, and they did that. And, you know, some teams did well, New England, and uh, other teams didn't, didn't need to trade out. Um, and I, I, I agree with it this year, definitely. Yeah, I mean, I talked to Freeze on last week, another big draft guy, college football guy, and he told me the same thing, that in this year's draft there wasn't a big difference between late first round and mid-second round. But I don't know, Eric. I mean, I, mean, I guess I have to believe what the experts are telling me, but I just feel like there's a big difference in the quality of player between 29 and 52. I mean, really? But I mean, that's almost 30 spots. It's, it's, it's the identical kind of player? Oh, yeah, and, and you're right. Uh, in, in, a, in a normal draft, if they didn't get – first rounder say in the next year like say say that was what they were trying to get like we got to get a first rounder we got one next year and then you can say well this year you're like oh well what's going on but then you know we got the two we got the two first rounders next year so that's what like the patriots i think it was a special draft i think they knew kind of what they were going after but you were exactly right i mean uh their first round pick jamie collins as opposed to you know another three four outside linebacker uh in, in the top of the draft you know uh I think you know Jarvis Jones is going to end up being you know great because even though his even though his uh, measurables maybe um, you know I like some of the things that they could have possibly done with just an athletic freak like Alec Ogletree even though he's got some spike. But what I'm saying is that there's definitely a difference in the play. And you're right, it's it's cost effective, you know, low risk, high reward, mm-hmm. cost effective strategy. There we go. Uh, last question on Belichick, Eric. I'm just curious to get your perspective on it. When he reaches and drafts a guy like Duran uh, Duran Harmon in, in the third <laughs> round, who's off everyone's board and drafts three players from Rutgers. I guess we all must have missed their multiple national championships that they've won over the past few years. Um, you know, like what's your reaction to it? I mean, if Oakland did it, they'd be the laughing stock. But because Belichick does it, I mean, do you try to validate it and think of what his reasons are for going so outside the box? I mean, this is a guy who we talked about loves cost effectiveness. Uh, loves loves value, loves to be cost-effective, but then he reaches and drafts a guy like Harmon in, in the third round who he could have gotten in the sixth or seventh round. I mean, to me, yeah. that seems to be the antithesis of value. So, I don't know. What did you make of some of that? Um, you know, let me tell you a, a little, little funny story about that. You know, you have your big board, and there's a guy out there I, I, I work uh, I work closely with, um, you know, kind of just trading different things, and he had this really good spreadsheet that kind of came up with uh, Darren Page, and he you know, we had all the, we had, you know, basically anybody that anybody's ever ranked, you know, out there, you know, you're talking 500, you're 400, 500 plays. And he was the first player that I had to, I had to write in my own tab for the guy on my <laughs> spreadsheet because I had never heard of him. I mean, I had to go, I heard of him, but not, not for that reason, not, not third round uh, grade, but you know, Logan Ryan gets picked. I, I think it's great. Long corner. You know, six two, whatever you know, whatever he is, and uh, very athletic. And then that that pick comes around, and Steve Harness in the later, you know, seventh. Um, <laughs> Bill Belichick, man, I, I don't know. They need to put him on a on a retainer in the state. You know, their their admissions and, and football uh, ticket sales are going to go up just because of uh, what <laughs> Bill Belichick's done for the school, man. I, you know, it's one thing to be, you know, uh, what was the guy uh, Belichick in? Who's uh, who's Ohio State head coach uh, Urban Meyer. Urban Meyer. Apparently, they were you know he would Tight. he would take uh, Florida players. It took three Florida he, he, guys you know, in the a, same draft yeah. in 2010. But those yeah. were real players, though. I mean, that, that was yeah. an SEC <laughs> team too. I mean, not Rutgers. Yeah. 
Yeah, we're talking, you know, different type of breed there. And uh, it, 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 you think about connections, and that's just one that has kind of come along lately. That that Rutgers, that Rutgers New England Patriots pipeline has uh, has grown substantially. Um. Yeah, no, a few more questions for you, Eric. Uh, Manti Teo goes to San Diego in the early second round. The Honey Badger, Tehran Matthew, goes to Arizona in the third round. Uh, what kind of impacts do you think both of those guys, obviously a lot of off-field uh, topics with them, what kind of impact will they have on the field for their respective clubs next season? Yeah, Manti Teo is going into a good situation because of the scheme fit. Um, he needed to stay in a 3-4 inside linebacker situation. Um he can play. His instincts lead him to be sideline to sideline, but obviously he's got issues um, with his with his hip movement. I think he's tight in the hips if you if you watch him. And I'm not just talking about the Alabama game where he got a little bit exposed because that was you know that's, that's a you know it starts snowballing there. It gets a little worse. You know they're down 41 whatever it was. Uh, but I think him going into the three four scheme that San Diego runs um, is going to be great for him. And I think he's going to have an opportunity to produce fairly early. Uh, they did release. Teo Spikes um, in the off season, and he was a big part of that. And Teo's kind of that guy, that fiery, you know, emotional guy on the field. Now off the field, you know, I've played the game at the college level, and and that's and that's I'm not going to lie. He's going to walk into a locker room, and they're going to get to know him, and then all of a sudden the jokes are going to start flying. Um, they're going <laughs> to they're going to they're going to harass him. He's going to have a good couple of months in him, um, and you know, and if it gets out of the way and they laugh about it. Manti Teo couldn't have gone to a better situation. Close, uh, you know, one of the closest teams to Hawaii. You know where his family's from. Um, good, good scheme, and I think he's going to have a tremendous impact uh, in the long run, um, just because of his intangibles on the field. You know, if there's nothing else off the field besides this, which is a, a great, it was a great story to follow, uh, except for him, and then I think he's going to be all right. I think the Honey Badger, though. <laughs> um, is going to have a much a much longer road to success. Hmm. Um, you were watching obviously the draft, and, and, and they brought up some stuff about his past, not not his his, his uh, the marijuana smoking and things like that. But I guess there were some other stories that had come out really recently about his upbringing, but also some of the other stuff he's been kind of involved with. And you know, he he comes from a pretty poor situation, I guess, family wise, um, and he's going into. From what they made it out on the draft, you know, I don't know any more than that. Uh, a very good family situation with uh, Patrick Peterson, um, another corner out of LSU that's that's already there in Arizona. Hmm. Where do I think he's going to make the most impact? I think it's in the return game. You know, I think that's where he, you know, that's where he makes his mark. And uh, if he can do that the first year, keep his nose clean, stay out of trouble, you know, I think he has a chance to succeed. I don't like size scares me at. at, at I guess they're going to slot him at free safety right now. Um, kind of that nickel corner, if you will. Uh, but I just, I have, I have, I have problems with, he's got to prove it to me. I'm sure he's the same with anybody else that watches the game. He's had a lot of issues. <laughs> it takes a lot to be kicked off that LSU team. Right. <laughs> that's a good point. I mean, yeah. No. Right. I mean, I mean, I mean, that's a good point, Eric. Uh, Eric Bending joining us here on the show. A uh, few more questions, Eric. It's taken us yeah. this long to get to the top of the draft because, well, I mean, three out of the top four guys taken are offensive linemen. Uh, my question to you is, a team like Jacksonville, you know, they have a lot of holes, right? They need bodies. They're terrible. 
Um, did they do the right thing by taking a left tackle, Luke Jokel, with their top pick? I mean, I know you need to protect the quarterback, and offensive line is important, but, I mean, don't you need a quarterback to protect first? I mean, how would a team like Jacksonville staying at number two and picking a left tackle? Oh, yeah. I mean, I had – this year I, I, I thought they would have gone defensive end. Uh, either that was what I I had heard they were going to go whatever offensive tackle was left, you know, basically. So like that was what I slotted in in my mock draft. But I really thought they were going to go uh, defensive line. I thought they were going to go. <laughs> I thought they needed to get to the pass. You know, you, you like you said, they need to protect the quarterback, but they sure as heck need to find a quarterback <laughs> right. too. Uh, uh, I didn't think they were going to take one in the first round. I knew uh, you kind of could hear. The rumblings that uh, that you know, Dave, Dave Caldwell he was, he was not gonna not gonna reach just to you know he's gonna build they were gonna build from from what they had and they were gonna take the best player available. That being said, you know they have a first round tackle in Eugene Monroe, you know at, at left tackle right now, and you think, well, okay, uh, do they need help at the other spot at right tackle? Yeah, can they move Monroe? Can they move, put Joe at right tackle? Possibly, but I think they just that was a prime example. And you hear about it, and it probably frustrates people. It's a prime example of taking the best, safest player available. They needed to hit on the first round pick, and I think that's where they were. That's where they were going. But look at all the holes. I mean, I love Justin Blackman. I hope he I hope he does well. But I mean, they don't have much of wide receiver. Um, Maurice Jones-Drew is not getting any younger, and he's not getting any less carries. Uh, you know, in that situation, if right. you got Blaine Gabbert at quarterback, and then all the holes they have on defense. So I, I just think it's one of those scenarios where. They they knew they had to hit. They went they, they went for the for the safest pick and and hoped to build you know with some later picks, which I think they did a pretty good job later on in the draft, um, trying to trying to fill some holes, corner safety, you know things like that. Right. I mean, Patriots fans always complain that you know they don't they, they don't enjoy the draft that much. And but you know, but my argument is, well, I mean, if teams that that fan bases that enjoyed the draft probably don't enjoy the season all that much because you're looking yeah, at the teams that pick up top. Jacksonville, Kansas City is a little better than them, but Oakland. I mean, just some wretched, wretched teams picking in that yeah. top ten. Eric. Um, final yeah. point I want. I'm, I'm sure New England yep. tra- uh, fans would love to trade, or I'm sure Oakland fans would love to trade with uh, New England fans. I'm sure they'd love to trade with like Cincinnati Bengals fans for God's right. sake. Um, um, yeah. Right. Uh, last question for you, Eric. Uh, I know it's kind of a tough question, but who do you think had the best draft overall? Real quickly, uh, for my opinion, I think the Steelers. Again, I, I, I think Jones is a good pick for them. Good linebacker. Uh, the Packers, I think, really improved. Drafted a good outside linebacker, and then Eddie Lacy, I like in the second round. Minnesota, you're obviously not that high on a, on, on the wide receiver they took um, at number 29. But overall, who do you think had the best draft from the weekend? Yeah. Green Bay and Pittsburgh, I love, um, especially because they hit needs right away. Um, right. I think need, I think need and value met. Uh, a team that I really kind of, you know, as I was writing in things, I started to come away really excited for was the Tennessee Titans. Uh, let me tell you why. I love Chance Warmack and Brian Schwenke. They got those two guys in the first four rounds. Obviously, Chance Warmack went first. Uh, Mike Munchak knows where knows where that team is. He's got to, you know. He's got a guy that they need to help, but they need to protect him. And uh, Schwenke's such a great asset in the middle of that. He had a great senior bowl. I know it's a fourth-round pick, but I have a feeling he has a chance to thrive in there with Chance Walmack at guard. They needed help. They brought in Andy Levitre. I think Tennessee nailed it with their first four picks because they got Justin Hunter, who 
second, like you said, second rounder. If he pans out, great. If not, you know, I mean, maybe some scout will, you know, our GM will catch a little, catch a little hell later on. Uh, Bleedy Ray Wilson from Connecticut. They had a really, you know, since Cortland Finnegan left, they needed a corner, and they they went out and got a good, a good physical guy. And I think they did a really good job in their first four rounds, and then had some chances late, you know, with some guys. Uh, Xavier Gooden out of Missouri, Lavar Edwards out of LSU, you know, SEC guys that have had production um, that with some coaching, you know, fourth and fifth round picks. I mean, you can't you can't go wrong with that. Um, follow the Falcons a lot down here in uh, South Carolina, um, and I, I love what they did with their needs. Um, they, they they got Desmond Trufant, they got Robert Alford, two guys that used that senior bowl, which I think this year was a huge tool for these guys. You know, I mean, it was a senior-heavy class, um, kind of filling out those later first-round picks, and I think Atlanta did a tremendous job of filling their need at corner and uh, getting some developmental guys um, you know, at tight end and defensive end and things like that. You know, speaking of Minnesota, getting two first-rounders and then, like you said, I, I like Cordero Patterson for what he can do. I just think he needs as much as much hand-holding as, as he can get, and, and that's fine, you know, and that's what they, that's what they pay those coaches for. Uh, I love uh, the kid's an unbelievable athlete, and, uh, you know, He'll go out there and, you know, hopefully have the best chance to succeed. But I like what Minnesota did. I mean, Minnesota, Leslie Fraser said, I better do something this year or I'm out of here. I mean, that's the way the NFL is. He went out. He made an impact. I love what they did as far as aggression and what they got as far as needs. They hit three needs in the first round. I mean, that's that's all you can do. Right. <laughs> Absolutely. Eric Bending, read him, footballnation.com, and also on his website, scoutingblitz.com. Eric, a pleasure having you on. We'll talk to you again soon. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, man. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. Love the show. Keep up the good work, man. Again, big thanks go out to Eric Bending, one of our resident draft gurus here on footballnation.com for coming on the program and helping us break down some of the biggest storylines from this past weekend's NFL draft. Now, major news across the sporting world this past week. NBA center Jason Collins came out in this week's Sports Illustrated. He is the first openly gay active athlete in one of the four major sports here in America. And this is a big deal. And it's being covered as a big deal by the media because it goes against our stereotype of gay men as these prissy feminine guys who don't do things like play defense against Shaquille O'Neal in the paint. Brittany Griner uh, came out as a lesbian a couple weeks ago, and nobody talked about it. Nobody mentioned it. It wasn't a story. Why? Because it fit with the stereotype that female athletes and female basketball players aren't feminine and thus are lesbian. Because the gender stereotypes long established in this country are that gay men aren't masculine and lesbians aren't feminine. And with Collins coming out, some of those stereotypes will now begin to change. And over time... Once gender roles change, and they will change because sociology is fluid, uh, a male parathlete coming out as gay won't be a big deal. It won't really even be covered by the media, just like Brittany Griner or other WNBA stars coming out isn't covered because it doesn't go against the stereotype. Stereotypes change over time, but right now Jason Collins, being the first gay male active athlete in one of the four major sports, 
is a big deal. And it's a big deal in being covered as such because it, go, it goes against our long-established societal stereotypes. Um, now, as a society, one of the biggest takeaways I have from this past week is it's apparent. We are changing rapidly on this issue. Guys like receiver Mike Wallace, who tweet out what he tweeted out, or ESPN analyst Chris Broussard, who says being gay is an open rebellion to God. Um, those clowns are now vilified and thought of as clowns, jokes, goons, not the norm. Wallace had to delete his tweets. Uh, Broussard has been shamed throughout this past week and will continue to be shamed and looked down upon. As a society, we are no longer tolerant of intolerance towards gays. We've come a long way. Because in the year 2013, everybody knows gay people. Everybody has crossed paths with a gay person or persons in his or her life. Uh, Steve Buckley is a gay sports columnist here in Boston. He writes for the Boston Herald. He's a frequent guest on my Red Sox podcast, Without a Curse, and he's become a good friend of mine over the years. Uh, Buck puts it really well when he says the difference between this, Jason Collins coming out, and an openly gay male professional athlete, and racial integration, which of course climaxed with Jackie Robinson in 1947, is that in the era of racial integration and racial integration in sports, uh, whites didn't associate with blacks. If you were a white person, you've never had a black friend. You've probably even never talked to a black person at length. Robinson had to wait for people to come around to him in the 1940s. Now in 2013, most people and athletes are waiting for gays to come around to them. And let's give credit to the athletes. From Kobe Bryant, the NBA big man Emeka Okafor, to a litany of others across all sports who have offered public support to Collins. Uh, the stereotype that all professional athletes are knuckle-dragging Neanderthals, who are incapable of accepting and embracing societal change, uh, that stereotype should begin to change after this, too. And these stereotypes will only continue to change, and eventually, it will not be a big deal. It will barely be covered in the media, just like Brittany Griner or any other female athlete coming out isn't really considered to be a big deal by the media or society. Why? Because it doesn't go against stereotypes. But Jason Collins is a big deal because it's our first concrete example in male professional sports it goes against the stereotype. And with the more exceptions there are to the stereotype, the stereotype will change. And there will be more exceptions. The days are coming. We'll have more and more openly gay, active, professional athletes. And that day will come soon. But there has to be a first. And Jason Collins is the first. Now, as far as how this ties into the NFL... Of course, we've heard the reports throughout the offseason that a gay player or gay players are considering coming out of the closet. I spoke with Shalise Manza-Young, Patriots reporter for the Boston Globe, about this topic a couple of weeks ago on the show. Shalise said the best time she thinks for a football player or players to do that would be in the middle of the summer when there's really a lull in the NFL and we're approaching that point. The draft is now behind us. Free agency is pretty much wrapped up. So May, June, early July, 
this is the time where if a gay player or a gay players were considering to come out, this is the time that might be best for them to do it. But of course, it's a highly personal thing, and there really is no perfect time to do it. It has to feel right. So we'll see on that. Um, Roger Goodell this week sent out a memo to NFL teams warning against homophobic rhetoric and discrimination based upon sexual orientation. And I've been calling all offseason for Goodell to lead on this issue. And I think this memo is certainly a step in that direction. Uh, the NFL commissioner making it clear to the owners and NFL teams that discrimination against sexual orientation will not be tolerated in the National Football League. And he also warns team against homophobic rhetoric, uh, which is prevalent throughout locker rooms. So calling for Roger Goodell to lead on this issue all offseason and I think he certainly took a step in that direction with the memo he sent out this week, which coincided with Jason Collins coming out, our first active professional gay athlete in one of the four major sports. Hats off to him. As Kobe Bryant says, hashtag BU. Over time, well, I think more athletes, more closeted athletes will have the courage to come out. And eventually it won't require a lot of courage because it won't be a big deal. But... Now, it is still kind of a big deal, especially in the sporting context. But over time, it won't be because stereotypes will change. And Jason Kahn's coming out and more falling suit will eventually begin to change the stereotypes involved with male professional sports. Now, in our third down segment, to get back to the football stuff, the big upper slowdown segment, I say a statement then express my agreement or disagreement with that statement by saying a big up or slow down. Question number one, Tim Tebow. The Jets released him this week. Is Tim Tebow's NFL career over? Big up or slow down? Still going to say slow down here, folks. I'm going to say slow down. Tim Tebow's NFL career is not over, nor should it be over. As a quarterback, I don't think it should be over. I've expressed this opinion before. Tebow was 7-4 and four as a starter in Denver two years ago. He won a playoff game against the Steelers two years ago. There are teams out there like mm, the Jaguars who have nobody at quarterback, could use some buzz. Tebow's a god down there. What does a team like the Jaguars, with all of their problems, have to lose if they sign Tebow? Worst case scenario, he can't play quarterback and it doesn't work out. Well, then you're back to where you are now, still not having any quarterbacks. In best case scenario, maybe he works out, maybe he wins you a couple of games, maybe he sells a couple of tickets, maybe he generates some buzz around your franchise that desperately needs it. But not just even from that perspective, not just from the, because I understand that's the wrong way to run a, a franchise. From an on-field perspective, Tim Tebow, I think, deserves a shot. To be a quarterback. Look at what he did with the Broncos two years ago. You're the Jaguars on the field right now. You have nobody. Absolutely nobody who can play the position competently. What do you have to lose by giving Tebow a shot? You have absolutely nothing to lose. Tebow's track record as an NFL quarterback is deserving of receiving another chance as a QB. But even if Tebow doesn't get another shot to be a quarterback, I still say he won't remain jobless for long. 
Because eventually, he wants to still play football, and if he does, he'll be willing to change positions if there's no quarterback jobs or opportunities out there for him. And once he does that, if nobody picks him up prior to him changing positions, saying he'd be open to changing positions, then I think suitors will line up. The coach will have to be smart. The coach will have to know what to do with him. But there are a lot of smart coaches, a lot of smart guys around the league. I know there's a coach here in New England who could maybe do something with him. The guy in Philadelphia, Chip Kelly, who's never afraid to think outside of the box. Jim Harbaugh in San Francisco. There's a lot of guys like that. So quarterback or no quarterback, I think Tebow has a future in this league. And my personal opinion on it, for the last time, I promise, at least last time for a while, Tebow deserves a chance to play as a quarterback. His on-field record as an NFL quarterback warrants it. The Green Bay Packers do not have to worry about Tim Tebow or their quarterback situation because they are set at QB. They signed Aaron Rodgers to a five-year, $110 million contract over the weekend. Rodgers will make $40 million in year one of the deal. It was guaranteed an NFL record $62.5 million. Make up or slow down. Even at those figures, those astronomical figures, did the Green Bay Packers get a good deal, a bargain even, on Rodgers' extension? Big up! Yes, it's a good deal for the Packers, given the current landscape of the league. Joe Flacco signed a six-year, $120 million extension with $52 million guaranteed. Tony Romo, which we discussed on this show several weeks ago, signed a six-year, $108 million contract extension with $55 million guaranteed. So Flacco gets $52 guaranteed. Romo gets $55 million guaranteed. Rodgers gets $62.5 million guaranteed. Wouldn't you say Rodgers is 10 million better than Flacco and what, 7 million better than Romo? Yeah, I'd say he is. He's certainly within that ballpark. And you look at the total figures of the deal 110 million overall for Rodgers, 120 million for Flacco, 108 million for Romo. That's the market now for quarterbacks in the NFL, and Rodgers is one of the best, if not the best, quarterback in today's NFL. So yes, it's a fair contract, a more than fair contract for the Packers. And what makes it a good deal is this. Aaron Rodgers' cap hit never exceeds $21 million. He will not be a burden on the Packers' salary cap. Contrast that with Romo, whose contract exceeds a $21 million cap hit, as soon as 2014, just one year from now. And in 2015, Romo's cap hit ex uh, increases to $25 million. So the cap hit is even less with Rodgers than it is with Romo, and it's comparable to Flacco in the latter stages of Flacco's contract. So you factor in the cap implications, and it actually goes from being a fair deal to a good deal for the Packers. Oh. And by the way, Rodgers is an infinitely better quarterback than Flacco or Romo. It's a slightly better deal than those guys. And he's a much, 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 much better player than those guys are. 
So yeah, factoring all that, the Packers got a good deal with Aaron Rodgers. Final question here. Simple one. Pick up or slow down. Was this a boring NFL draft? Sorry. But I'm going to go big up here. Yeah, for me, it was a relatively boring draft. Boring ass draft, to be exact. Three of the first four picks were offensive linemen. Eh, I understand. Building an O-line is important. It's a vital component to any winning football team. But who the hell is watching college football and breaking down offensive line play? Who the hell has their eyes on the left guards or left tackles? Who's watching college football games breaking down O-line play? Tell me. And if you tell me a person who's doing that, I'll tell you a person who has a problem. And that's fine. I obsess over sports as well. I can name pretty much every Houston Astro, which is a real problem. It means I'm not living a balanced life if I can name more than five Houston Astros, but I can. So I'm not degrading you. I'm just saying, admit you have a problem. If you watch college football games, obscure college football games, in the case of Eric Fisher, the Chiefs took number one overall, if you're breaking down offensive line play. So for the rest of us who aren't doing that, yeah, it's a boring-ass draft. It's not an exciting draft. To me, the most exciting moment in the first round was a St. Louis Rams trading up to get wide receiver Tavon Austin. Will that move work out for St. Louis? I don't know. But I like it. I like the aggressiveness giving Sam Bradford another weapon. Now, Todd DeFries was on our show last week, and he said the second and third, and third rounds, that's when you want to watch last Friday night. And Todd was right. That was the most exciting part of the draft. You saw a lot of skill position players go, a lot of maneuvering still in those rounds. Uh, that was fun. Friday night was entertaining. Thursday night, prime time, though, first round where the NFL really makes their money selling the draft? No. Snooze fast. Boring for the most part. Few exciting moments here and there, like the Rams trading up. But outside of that, no. Yawn. Snooze fest. Boring. So yeah, for the average Joe like me, when it comes to the draft, boring ass draft. Big up. Yes, it was. Boring. But hopefully you still enjoyed our analysis of it. Coming up to close out the show in the fourth down segment, it's the Reamer rant looking at Cardinals rookie Teron Matthew, the honey badger from LSU, Reports coming out this week that the Cardinals will randomly drug test Matthew, so I guess that means if he smokes some weed, he'll be punished and potentially punished severely. But here's my question. If the Honey Badger gets charged with a DUI, what happens? Is there a DUI provision in his contract, or is he fine? Is the DUI not a big deal? Now, we've talked about this story before on this show, and I'm going to continue to harp on this story, because it's a big deal. It's a major hypocrisy, not just in the NFL, but in all the professional sports in this country. The fact that if you smoke a little weed, you get punished, you get suspended in some cases, but you get a DUI, put other lives, including yours, in jeopardy? Eh, nothing. Can you play the next week? No injuries? Great. Suit up. You Get ready to go on Sunday. I mean, really, it's unbelievable to me. The NBA in the wake of Jason Kahn's coming out, has proven to be a more accepting league, a more tolerant league, than I think maybe some gave a credit for, uh, from players, coaches, managers, etc. The uh, response has been tremendous to Collins. So the NBA may do acceptance right. They may do tolerance right. They also do drug testing right. The NBA does not drug test. 
It's another thing it does right. Now, you can make the argument about performance-sensing drugs and steroids, and that's fine about whether sports have a moral obligation to police those substances, but because the NBA does a drug test, they also, and, and, and you know, and I'm kind of throwing that aside because, as you know, I think that with science being where it is, it's just part of the evolution of sport that performance-enhancing drugs, steroids, and substance of the like will always have a place in sports because the science will always be a step ahead of the medicine. A st uh, excuse me, the science will always be a, hep a, step a, se a step ahead of the technology. The medicine will always be a step ahead of the testing. So, you know, I just think that's a part of sports, testing or no testing, which is why the best you can do is police it. You can never come close to stopping it. Um, but because the NBA doesn't drug test, they also don't test for marijuana. Um, so if a guy takes a few hits from the bong, nobody knows, nor should anybody know about that in the first place, because it's not dangerous. It's not affecting anybody. The New York Times came with a study that said 60 to 70% of NBA players smoke marijuana on a regular basis. And you look at these guys, you're watching the playoffs right now. Um, wow, these guys are in great shape, aren't they? I mean, you would never know. Some of these guys are potheads, big time potheads. Um... What difference does it make if a guy smokes a little weed or not? I understand Tyron Matthews is a bit of a different case because he may have dealt in college, and that's a whole nother can of worms. That's, you know, a lot of legal ramifications with that. But in terms of smoking a little weed, who cares? What's the big deal? It's certainly not nearly a big deal as drunk driving, getting charged with a DUI, and blowing something like a .22 or into the breathalyzer, which these guys do. I mean, that's like driving blackout. That's not just driving a little buzzed. And yet if you do that... You might not get suspended at all. They take a few hits from the bong with your friends on a Friday night. Ah, you could be out. And in Tyron Matthews' case, your career could be in jeopardy. It's hypocrisy. And really, it's the most pure form. It's unbelievable to me. And that remains something I'll continue to harp on because I still can't wrap my head around it. Another edition of the Football Nation Today podcast, episode number 48. Again, and thanks go out to Eric Bending for taking the time and coming on the show, helping us break down the ramifications of the NFL draft. A brief scheduling note, we are reaching the so-called doldrums of the NFL offseason. That does not mean that there is still not a lot to talk about. There is a lot to talk about, but maybe just not as frequently there will be a lot of stuff to talk about. So... We encourage you to keep visiting footballnation.com on a regular basis. I know I will continue to do that. Uh, but for the rest of this offseason, until training camps kick up in July, uh, this podcast, Football Nation Today, will go to a bi-monthly schedule. So instead of a new show being published every Wednesday, a new show will be published every other Wednesday. For example, the next edition of Football Nation Today will come at you on Wednesday, May the 15th. So Wednesday, May the 15th, two Wednesdays from now, the next edition, Football Nation Today, episode 49, will be published. So the news will continue to come out. We'll continue to provide commentary and analysis and hopefully some entertainment on the latest NFL news. But just for the rest of the offseason, until, until training camps kick up in July, uh, we'll be going on a bi-monthly schedule. As always, feel free to... Uh, a bi yes, a bi-monthly schedule. Um, as always... Feel free to leave a comment on the show, on the show page here at footballnation.com. Also, feel free to reach me via email, areamer at bu.edu is my email address, and also follow me on Twitter 
at AlexStreamer1 is my Twitter name. Thanks for listening. Enjoy the rest of your week. And again, until training camps open up in July, a new show will be published every other Wednesday. Next edition of Football Nation Today comes at you in just two weeks on Wednesday, May the 15th. So long. Talk to you then. Looking forward to it. I'm sure we'll have a boatload to discuss.